0: Hello, and welcome to The OrthoPod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Professor Julian Feller graduated from medical school at Monash University with honours in 1982 and has recently brought up 30 years of experience as an orthopaedic surgeon. Julian is based at OrthoSport Victoria in Epworth, Richmond, consulting to a wide range of patients from professional athletes to weekend warriors on his special interests of anterior cruciate ligament injury, patella instability, knee replacement and osteotomy. Julian also has a strong research background, having published extensively and written many book chapters, in addition to being an associate editor of the Orthopaedic Journal of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the Orthopod, Professor Feller. Thank you. So before we discuss your career as a surgeon, I'd like to talk about your experience that you had as a patient. Can you tell me what happened on November 23rd,
1: 2016? Sure. On 23rd, November 2016, I had a kidney transplant, and you know that was obviously a pretty major experience for me. I'd actually had a lot of surgery for various reasons leading up to that, and a bit since then, and I often say to my patients, I've had way more operations than you have, and I think that pretty much is true every time someone will catch me out one day. But, I mean, the background to that was uh, I've got polycystic kidney disease. Um, For those of you who know anything about that, it's usually an autosomal-dominant inheritance, but there was no family history, and I was regarded as a sporadic mutation. Back in the day, there was no genetic testing, and I remember when it became available in the U.S., I paid $8,000, we're talking 20 years ago at least, um, probably more, to get that done. And the test didn't work, so I had to pay another 5000 to get it done again. But um, that just confirmed I was a sporadic mutation, so bad luck, basically. And I coped pretty well. Even when I went in for my surgery, a lot of people didn't know I was in end-stage renal failure. So I never had to go on dialysis, although they were getting pretty worried towards the end that if I'd got a fl- bad flu or something like that, that might tip me over the edge and bring on surgery faster. But the most amazing part of the whole story is where I got the kidney from, and it was from a mate, Larry Middleton, who currently is off hiking in the UK. But um, Larry's someone I knew from Gunnamatta Surf Lifesaving Club. We would have known each other since our early 20s, I guess, Um, i joined that club at a very young age and Larry would have joined when I was club captain I suspect which was around 2021 and we were good mates but interestingly everyone assumes we were best mates and we're really good mates over summer and whenever one of us would turn up at the beach the first thing we'd do is look out the back and see whether we could see the other one out the back waiting for a wave but over winter we probably didn't see each other that much and We've got a patrol called the Megasaurs, and it's not, all, it's not only old guys, but a lot of the old guys are in that patrol, and there's a lot of young people in it too, and it's a, a great patrol group. But over the years, you spend a lot of time sitting around on patrol in bad weather and not doing much, so we know a fair bit about each other after, I don't know how many years of patrolling it is, but you can work it out. It was 15 when I started, I'm 63, 64 this year, so everyone knew I had kidney failure, and ultimately would require a transplant and one night we had the awards function and annual general meeting which was down at the clubhouse in June so usually a pretty miserable evening down there and we we're just chatting beforehand someone said oh where are you at and i said oh, i'll need a transplant at some stage and they said oh what does that involve and i said well you can get a cadaver donor or a um a living donor and what does that involve and I said oh I think you have to be the same blood type which in fact is incorrect um shows how much I knew about it at that stage and it also indicates how passive a patient I am I tend to just choose my doctor and let them call the shots but just for out of general interest I happen to be AB positive and that's the universal recipient which is perfect in in terms of transplantation but anyway someone said oh when I said I think you have to be the same blood group and I think I mean Larry actually said oh what blood group are you? AB positive. He goes, oh, so am I. And then someone sort of said, oh, you wouldn't want Larry's kidney. It's had a pretty hard life and he'll end up a redhead anyway. And a bit of laughter and sort of the conversation drifted off elsewhere. And probably 10 days later or so, Larry sent me a text and, hey, Julian, give me a call. And I thought, that's a bit weird, out of the blue. And I, somehow I knew exactly what he was going to, to or wanted to talk about and sure enough I rang him and it took me a while to build up courage to ring him to be honest because I had an inkling of what he was going to say and he said oh I've thought about it and you can have one of mine I've got two I only need one typical Laz attitude and um I said oh it's a big call we you know we need to talk about this for a fair while and it's not desperate just yet but you know let's have a chat and one thing led to another and you know we end up going through with it all but what was fascinating to me was when we were in hospital there was a bit of a competition between the two of us as it always has been at the beach but the day after surgery it was who was going to get up first and walk around to the other person's room and Larry was very disappointed when he got round to my room to find I wasn't there but I was actually on a trolley downstairs having a test but um, so he actually won that one but people would come in and say oh we want to meet Larry, everyone wanted to meet Larry, people didn't really care that much about how I was travelling, but um, Larry's the hero, and it was then that it sort of all came out, and someone said, oh, you must be best mates, and Larry in his own way goes, oh, I don't know if I'd say that sort of thing, and it was such a load off my mind, to be honest, and following that, we, we talked further, and it turns out, after that night at the gun to surf life-saving clubhouse in the middle of June and Jenny got in the car and without a word being said Jenny goes are you thinking what I'm thinking and Larry said yes and so they both incredibly generous people and obviously Larry you know has given the sort of ultimate in terms of a, a gift of generosity and it's all been fantastic since then I mean obviously there's a few hiccups with the transplant but basically you know life's good and mm. I'm practicing medicine and doing the stuff i want to do which obviously wouldn't have been possible if that hadn't happened
0: that's an incredible story and you know you've you've mentioned that you've been at gunamatta for quite a while and you've got quite an active lifestyle i know you've got a bit of an interest in rowing as well and, and skiing when you can how important are these sort of things for you as a busy surgeon to maintain an active lifestyle outside of work and how do you find the time to do these things
1: um, i've always been reasonably fit i'm going through phases where less fit than I'd like to be and probably always less fit than I'd like to be if the truth be known but and that's really just a factor of time you know you just don't have the the time to to do it all but I think it's very very important um rowing you know I hardly would say I've got any skill at it but um that became particularly important to me in the lead up to the transplant I took rowing lessons one of my daughters rowed, and she was horrified the day I said I was going to take lessons and she said oh I've been waiting for you to say that and so I waited until after the head of the schoolgirls, and in her final year and I met this guy called Matt Ryan and we became great mates. He was an elite level rower and had rowed for Australia in the Olympics and uh, medalled and he and I just hit it off right from the start probably for lots of reasons. He was at a difficult place in the sense that he'd given up his international rowing career and was at a Bit of a loose end and a crossroads, but he tried to teach me the basics of rowing, and that time on the water was an escape. And I started doing it midweek, which I'd, I'd never taken any time off during the day. And on a Wednesday around lunchtime, I'd go and have a lesson with Matt. And even though I was pretty tired at that stage, and basically I'd work, I'd get home, I'd go to bed. Just from the kidney disease, that little window was something that just took me completely away from everything else if you're not concentrating you fall in and the conversations with Matt were refreshing coming from a completely different world Um, I talked about stuff that had nothing to do with medicine and so that was important in itself and skiing's always been a great hobby for me and I love doing that I've done that since a young age fortunately and again never enough not often enough not as much time as I'd like but I, I think it's all important and Gunna Matter, I did have a period away from the club when the family, well, first of all, when I was doing the orthopaedic training and early in practice and with a young family, but it, the girls both did nippers and I got involved again. And even though sometimes you think, oh, gee, I could do without going down to the beach today because Gunna Matter, we don't have a big club, so we're patrolling every fortnight or every th- third weekend. You know, sometimes you think, oh, I could do with a day off. But once you're there, it's always worth it. You know, it's the camaraderie. You have to actually work down there. I mean, Gunamatta can be a pretty dangerous beach. Mm-hmm. We're pretty good at sort of picking when people are going to get into difficulty. My you mum, know, from the day we used to have, it, have to swim out with the belt and line, you know, to do a rescue. So it was a big deal. If you were going to do a rescue, you had to shut the beach and when those days are long gone, it's all the IRB now. But you know, I think incredibly important to keep yourself grounded. There's no one else medical or there is just recently another doctor at the club, but no one else medical in the surf club. My mates from skiing are all non medical pretty much. And again for rowing, so I I like that sort of get that aspect of getting away from medicine.
0: Yeah, so it's a bit you know, like a like meditative state for you. It gives you time away from Thinking about clinical practice and patients, and and media, and all the things that come along with your role as a quite important knee surgeon in uh in Melbourne, and and these you know these sporting things, rowing in particular. I'm from Ballarat; it's quite a popular sport up there, and it sounds like you didn't have to uh, do the early mornings of rowing that most uh, junior rowers grow up doing, going to rowing before school, which in Ballarat is quite uh, frustrating. But it's a, it's a beautiful sport; it's a, it's the ultimate team sport, I think. Did those sort of things. Um, You know, for you moving into a career as an orthopaedic surgeon, particularly in sports orthopaedics, is there a link there at all between those interests? I'm
1: not sure. Um, Speaking of the early mornings, I did my fair share of driving as a parent, so I know (laughs) what it was like. Prior to that, it was water polo, and water polo starts even earlier. Okay. (laughs) Um, look, probably, but it was interesting, during medical school, I loved pretty much everything we did. And... I mean, I reckon I had a great time, and you know, I was very lucky. At the time I was at medical school, we lived in for a lot of terms for obstetrics, uh, but the old Queen Vic and medicine surgery, we lived in at the Alfred. For that was in fifth year, so basically fifth year, you didn't live at home. And there was a period where even Fairfield Infectious Diseases, we lived in there. And, I mean, there's some great stories, which probably aren't for. Um, <laughs> general publication that, that came out of that but there weren't many things that I didn't really enjoy and even as an intern and resident most of the specialties I was in I loved but there was a moment late in final year and I can still remember it quite vividly at the Alfred and it just struck me, I'm a surgeon and that's what I wanted to do and it had to do more with thinking than anything else, my way of thinking it was, you make a decision you act on it and you can't really undo that decision particularly in surgery so it was sort of a bit of a light bulb moment and I still enjoyed doing general medicine as an intern and had a great registrar and learnt a lot and actually thought I was you know pretty competent to be honest in, in general medicine and won the community practice prize in final year at, at um, Monash so a big interest in general practice and I probably would have been happy doing lots of different things in medicine, but it was that moment that made me think of surgery. And, and then orthopaedics came along probably in a slightly more calculated fashion. It, it didn't seem calculated at the time, but it, it probably was. I, the things that really appealed to me were general surgery, cardiothoracics, vascular, and orthopaedics from the rotations I'd done. And in cardiothoracics, I thought, mm, valve disease is sort of going to wane, so it'll just be you know, bypass grafts. People weren't putting stents in back then. And I thought, that's going to be pretty repetitive. And um, vascular surgery I I liked, but you realise that smoking was declining and maybe vascular disease was going to get less. General surgery was a pre-laparoscopy era. And I've got big hands. I thought, big hands, general surgeon, big incisions, not great for the patients. Really sort of basic sort of stuff. And that's probably why I decided on orthopaedics. And as it turned out, coronary artery stents took away a lot of the cardiothoracic surgery same for vascular and laparoscopy took off for general surgery but I got into orthopedics and again I wasn't really set on sports not until probably very late so it was four-year training program first year Royal Melbourne introductory but I started thinking spines really interesting second year I was at Box Hill with Stan Schofield who did a lot of spines amongst other things and I, I really like spinal surgery, so I could see myself heading that way. And then th- third year I was at Repat doing a lot of joint replacements. Um, and again, very, very lucky just in the timing of my training, got enormous exposure. Did over, I think it might've been 220 or something primary joint replacements myself as a registrar, which you know nowadays the poor registrars might wouldn't even do that in their full training program so anyway then I saw myself as a joint replacement surgeon and finally I was at the Austin and um, that's where I met John Bartlett I met him once briefly but he became a great mentor and we'll probably come to that in a bit but I really sort of got interested in knees as a subspecialty and both joint replacement and sports and things evolved from there and the ACL probably has become my passion if you like and that's probably where I've built my name the most but I still like all sorts of knee surgery and John was a huge influence on my career and heading into sports and things just build and evolve and that's how it happened.
0: Well let, let's let's talk about that so you know Mr Bartlett I believe he retired somewhat recently you'll have to correct me on, on that but oh, I
1: might be getting on a few years now because
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was uh, in, in, in preparing for the yeah. podcast I went back as far as I could to try and find uh, your earliest publication and and one of the ones was in 1993 just uh, a couple of years after i was born in the kester journal knee surgery sports traumatology arthroscopy and it was titled patelectomy and osteoarthritis arthroscopic findings following previous patelectomy the findings of this work were that patelectomy may be a predisposing factor to osteoarthritis but uh, i would actually like to learn more about the uh, co-author which was mr bartlett can you tell me about uh, who he was and and how important mentorship has been for you and your career
1: Well your research is pretty good but my first publication was vasectomy in the male rat (laughs) (laughs) and that was done when I was I did a year at the anatomy school at Monash and actually did that quite early. Adrian Polglaze a general surgeon who was also the influence on my early time as a resident Um, he was at the Alfred but um he advised me to go, take a year off after intern year and go and do the anatomy year, then get my first part surgical exam. it seemed pretty radical at the time. Usually, he did it after second year or maybe even after third year. And I was terrified I was going to lose all the skills you learn as an intern. And probably halfway through the first day back as a what well, was it resident um, after that year off, I realised you pick things up straight away, and um, so that wasn't an issue. But that was my first bit of research that I did, and a couple in between, but the patalectomy paper was with John, and it's interesting how that even came about because it says something about John. He was very good at keeping records, and it was all paper then, and he used to video every arthroscopy he did, and there was a ton of um, VHS tapes, and he'd put a little label on them, and he had these patients who'd had a um, patalectomy. And on whom he'd done arthroscopies and that was the basis of that paper and it says something about his approach in this record keeping and he coded every patient he saw or every operation he did maybe every patient he saw it was a A4 cut in half printed so it was just a tick box for I think five columns from memory and it allowed him to go back and search his patients and that is one little in, one of the many influences he had on me, because right from the start of my practice, I collected data on my patients, and that led on to the routine follow-up of patients having an ACL reconstruction and knee replacement and osteotomy, but particularly ACL reconstruction, and we'd follow them all up at 12 months and then even further on. But that whole approach really stemmed from JB, but... There's much bigger factors about JB and his influence on me. He's an incredibly humble and gentle man who has had an unbelievably big influence on orthopaedics around the world, particularly in knee surgery. He's had a fellowship program or had a fellowship program for a long time. I was one of his early fellows and when I came back from my time as a fellow overseas, I joined him in the rooms and from day one I've always had a fellow looking over my shoulder and pretty intimidating when you're a young surgeon and the fellow might even be older than you are and cause I was quite young my whole way through and people asking you why are you doing that why are you doing that I'm going i do that because JB does it <laughs> and it, it was fine I mean JB I did things when when in doubt I did what JB would do and I started doing my own things and he'd quiz me and the classic was why are you doing hamstring grafts I said ah, oh. back then it was all patella tendon or it was for him and I said, oh, I just reckon there might be a role, and for some patients, I thought it had something to do with pain, post-operative pain and recovery and that sort of stuff. I don't think that's true, but that was my impression at the time. And he said, Oh, I don't know, not didn't say much, just a bit of a grunt. And the next thing he started doing hamstrings, and then he started doing way more hamstrings than patellar tendon grafts. And I'm saying, I think there's still a role for patellar tendon. <laughs> But um, one of the early interactions was leading up to my fourth year of training, which was at the Austin, and I was offered the opportunity to go to the American Academy of Orthopaedic Surgeons Annual Meeting, which was was, and probably still is the biggest meeting in the world. It's much reduced in size, but pre-COVID there, I'm not quite sure of the numbers, but I was told there used to be 25,000 people there, and it certainly seemed like that. I think it's way down now, under 10,000. But here I was given this opportunity... Um, to go, expenses paid, and but it clashed with my first week of the new job. And I thought, oh, that's a bit rich, sort of asking for a week off when I've only been there for one week. And I rang him, and he said, don't be stupid. Of course, you got to go. Someone else is paying. Do it, and nothing was a problem for him. He didn't, and I probably should do more of what John did and not make things a problem. I probably overthink things um, too much. But John, very, as I say, humble, relaxed, gentle. And his manner with patients suited my sort of approach as well. And one of the little things I did learn from him was that whenever you see a patient, you make some physical contact with them. Um, On a ward round, you lay your hand on the knee. When you're consulting, you always examine the patient anyway, no matter how trivial it might be, even if someone's just come back to make a decision about a total knee replacement you still put your hands on and check the range of motion, even though it's probably not going to influence what you do. And that personal contact does a lot. And COVID, I think, was very destructive for medicine. So that sort of manner of John really resonated with me. And then it was transferred into how he managed committees and meetings and that sort of thing, Um, how he could say something very gently, not... But in early on, I tend to still want to get in there and get my opinion out there, and he would just wait and then give a very rounded view. Particularly if there's a, a lot of to and fro and it's a bit heated, his calming manner was was always good. Um, the other thing he, he taught me was, there, you know, there come times and we've just got to hand patients on, and some might see it as handballing. And you know, there are a couple of patients early on. I thought, whoa. He, I'm not sure that I'm ready to take that on, but he'd obviously had a, he thought, no, I haven't been able to make this work, be it an osteotomy that hasn't united or whatever, give it to someone else, and it, you spread the load, and that's a really helpful thing in medicine. If, you, if you're struggling, you ask, and I'd like to think I'm quite open, particularly to some of the, my younger colleagues, and they can come to me with a patient or x-ray or whatever and I think that reassurance is even more important now when the experience during training is less and people are doing it on the fly a little bit so all of those sort of factors have been incredibly important that they're things from John that have been very important to me I mean we did have a we've had our rough times you know probably when the young buck's pushing a bit hard and the old buck doesn't like it but at one stage I gave him a book and wrote a note in it just how much I appreciated him and I rang him between cases just to make sure he got the book because I he wasn't there when I dropped it off and he was almost in tears saying that's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done to me in orthopedics and you know I think that it wasn't such a big deal but it just highlights you've got to say it when you appreciate someone and and I think I've, I've learned from that and I'm more than happy to to tell people they're doing a good job or what they've you know a little thing has meant to me. I had a conversation with one of my colleagues just recently in brief conversation, corridor con- um, conversation and he said something that really changed my view of something I've been stressing over and I sent him a text the next day to say gee thanks for that, that, that was just so helpful and I think we need to do that more, we're, we're too competitive in particularly in orthopaedics.
0: Yeah well mentorship's a recurring theme over this podcast, I think each time I talk to someone inevitably they have a, a mentor in their life that's really important and Um, Even one of the now colleagues of yours, Dr Julia Kirby, she was mentioning about how helpful your mentorship uh, was for her when she was doing a fellowship with you. Uh, And that fellowship was in anterior cruciate ligament injury, which is your expertise. Anyone listening to this would know your name, certainly in Melbourne on that regard. And before we go into some of the more technical things, how would you describe the ACL to uh, a medical student or or a patient?
1: I'll go back to JB. (laughs) It's the size of your little finger. (laughs) And it's three centimetres long, (laughs) in the middle of your knee. But um, look, it's a ligament in the middle of the knee. There's the cruciate ligaments, anterior and posterior, so called because they cross over each other and head in opposite directions. They're in the intercondylar notch in the femur, and then on each side of the knee you have a medial collateral and a lateral collateral. And essentially, you've got these four ligaments and. One way of looking at it is that you've got a medial compartment and a lateral compartment, and each compartment has collateral ligaments, and so the anterior cruciate ligament is the medial ligament of the lateral compartment. And there's probably something in that, in fact, because anterior cruciate ligament injuries are often tied up with damage to the lateral compartment. And they're usually injured in a non-contact change of direction mechanism. And we all talk about pivoting, but it's not, it's cutting. And so if I tear my left anterior cruciate, I've planted my left foot and I'm pushing off to the right. And there's often a little distraction in there as well. But that's the movement, and that would account for the vast majority of ACLs. There may be a little bit of incidental contact to the upper body that puts someone off balance or makes them change direction. Um, Hyperextension is the other classic sort of non-contact injury, but much less common. And there's subtle variations of it that are specific to individual sports, but someone actually crashing into your knee and wiping it out from medially or laterally is is pretty uncommon. And I think that's important to remember because that influences a whole lot of things in terms of the operation we do and the rehabilitation and patient's confidence about getting back to, to sport. But It does have a capacity to heal, which has probably been under-recognised in the past couple of decades. It was recognised pre-MRI, and there was a much greater emphasis on trying to repair the ACL. John Grant, who was JB's mentor, used to do a lot of repairs, and they resulted in what I'd say is semi-stable knees. It was very interesting because there were two different approaches. There was a minimalistic approach, was John Grant really, and his knees were often a little bit loose but not stiff and they didn't seem to get arthritis particularly often. There was another group which was the big extra articular procedures really trying to tighten up the knee that were stable but they were stiff and they became osteoarthritic. And that's really through the late 70s and 80s, early 80s and, um, or even probably all of the 70s and early 80s. And so I had the opportunity to see a lot of these patients further down the track. You don't see so many now. I do still see patients, and I can carbon date their operation and who did it. You know, I can say, that's John Bartlett at about, I think, probably 1988, just off the x-ray. And um, if I've got the scars as well, then you know, I can really pick the, the year of it, because things were evolving very rapidly, whereas now it's much more stock standard, and there's subtle little variations, but nowhere near as dramatic as was occurring in the sort of 70s and 80s and early 90s.
0: And nowadays um, there's certainly grafts that are changing. I think I've heard you talk before that you know the Europeans or the Americans have differing views on which graft to use. So there's the hamstring, quadriceps and patellar tendon grafts. Can you just touch on sort of the differences between them and not so much your preference but um, you know why, why one might be used over the other or Um, how they've evolved and and the subtle differences between them
1: to be honest it's probably a toss of the coin and it's what you've grown up doing um, which is influencing graft choice as much as anything nowadays but patella tendon was regarded as the the gold standard if you like partly from the american literature in australia it was seen as the gold standard although you have to give credit to people like david young who were hamstring from very early on rod dalziel so a lot of the guys at the Melbourne Orthopaedic Group were using hamstrings quite early but I think patellar tendon was favoured because it had bone at both ends and that was regarded as giving more secure fixation it was less clear for the hamstring graft which was was all soft tissue quadriceps was floating around in the background a little bit more in Europe than anywhere else I'd always had it as a a backup when I'd run out of other options but didn't do many at all until the last few years where I became more interested in it and so I became more interested in... um, and probably talking to some of my European colleagues in particular, a couple of good mates from Innsbruck who were both fellows with John Bartlett, Christian Fink and Christian Hoser. And they'd been using it quite a bit in alpine skiers. They deal, deal a lot with and, and ski racing fraternity, both are brilliant skiers themselves. And I was concerned also that here I was doing hamstrings and seeing this high failure rate in young patients in particular, but in Melbourne... There was a big physio push against patellar tendon. It was The downside was anterior knee pain, patellar tendinopathy, which I think we've probably become a little bit fearful of unnecessarily. But also, I think, as the demands of professional sport have gone up, which has translated down into recreational sport, the rehabilitation is more intense and maybe there's a potentially more room For that to occur but when I was doing a lot of patellar tendon grafts I just told people look you get a bit of irritation around your patellar tendon eight to ten months it goes you'll be fine and that was generally the case kneeling was an issue for some patients So there was the downside of patellar tendon, hamstrings got the downside of hamstring strains, hamstring weakness, probably don't really get full hamstring strength back and certainly in the first year or two, hamstring weakness can be an issue. So quads sort of seemed attractive from that point of view and it doesn't seem to have too many downsides. There is some patients, I don't see it much, but some patients get some anterior knee pain, some pain at the front of the knee, but... I think they're all good grafts, and to be honest, I find it quite hard to choose one or the other at the moment. I'm even starting to do more patella tendons again, and partly it's to do with fixation, hamstring fixation has evolved, quads tendon fixation has evolved very rapidly, but there's a lot of material within the graft used to fix it, and I always worry about how much foreign material you've got in the, the tunnels, particularly when it comes to revision. So, yeah, there are your three option, main options. I mean, you can use allograft and you can use synthetics, but the LARS had its day, and which I think is a good thing. So I think synthetics, either as an augmentation or as a standalone graft, probably still have a way to go. Um, and we tend to stick with um, autographs or where there's a big allograft availability, particularly in the US, I think people like allografts because of the lack of morbidity from harvest, quicker recovery. I'm not a fan, personally. I know I've got some Sydney colleagues who use them and have reported similar results to hamstring ACLs, but I prefer to stick with something, an autograph, to something from the patient themselves. And that can be from the other knee as well.
0: Sounds like we could do a whole podcast on the grafts. We and, could. And Lars is certainly something I, um, I would love to talk more about, because um, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing, but I'm sure people can just Google... Uh, Lars, L-A-R-S, what it is, and, and even find some earlier comments from you in regards to using that technique. Um, another thing that we could possibly even do a whole other podcast on is the anterior lateral ligament uh, and the lateral extra-articular tenodesis. Could you just touch on what that is and possibly a bit of uh, anatomical history with regards to Paul Sagond?
1: Sure. I mean, Sagond, S-E-G-O-N-D, is known for the fracture that's eponymously named after him, and it's it's seen with an ACL rupture, and if you see a Sagon fracture, the patient has torn their ACL essentially. And it was an important adjunct to diagnosis pre MRI. And MRI really only became available in Melbourne in 1994. We had access to one at the Austin, but you look back at the quality of the images then, and it's extraordinary how we even thought they were fantastic. I mean, nothing compared to what we have now. But the Sagon fracture is an avulsion from the lateral aspect of the tibial plateau, a little bony fragment. And there is a sort of soft tissue version, which you can see on MRI or on dissection, which is probably more common. The sagon fracture isn't that common. But when you see it, as I say, it's definitely an ACL tear. And there was a lot of debate in recent years about where it came from, and people didn't go back to the literature and see what Paul Segond had actually written. But it's not the iliotibial band coming off Gertie's tubicle, which a lot of people thought it was. It's not the lateral collateral ligament, which obviously comes off the the fibula. It's the anterolateral complex, to use a sort of somewhat neutral term. There's debate as to how much the anterolateral ligament is truly a separate entity or just a thickening that can be exaggerated during dissection a thickening within the complex, but there's no doubt there are antrolateral fibres that are important for the stability of the knee, and they're pulled away as part of the internal rotation of the tibia when the ACL goes, and you see the bone bruising at the back of the tibia in the middle of the lateral femoral condyle, and that can lead to this Segon fraction. Now, the really fascinating part of it was that it was described before x-ray had been developed but it, what he did was take a whole lot of cadavers and apply forces to the knee how he did it i don't know i mean they're massive forces and um and then dissected out the knee to see what was there and that's how he described the sagotten fracture and when you look at the illustrations from his article about it i mean they're intricate um, illustrations and they're as good as an mri today i mean you could take one and overlay it with an mri and it's you know, to all intents and purposes, the same image. So incredible what these people could do and their attention to detail to describe these injuries. But the understanding that that anterolateral part of the knee is important was recognised in the phase of a lot of extra-articular reconstructions, so late 60s in leading into the 70s, and was the basis of a whole lot of procedures, lateral tenodices, um, low Le C, maire. Macintosh and Ellison, lots of different people described similar procedures, generally taking a bit of tissue and attaching it, or augmenting its attachment between the anterolateral aspect of the tibia and somewhere further up the femur, proximal and posterior to the lateral femoral epicondyle, at varying degrees or going through the intermuscular septum, and it was all about controlling this internal rotation of the tibia relative to the femur, and They sort of fell out of favour because, as I mentioned earlier, that the extra-articular reconstruction approach tended to result in stiff knees and osteoarthritis and became much more attractive just to do an isolated ACL reconstruction, which, by the way, is not new. I think Haygrove's described reconstruction of the ACL with a... I think it was actually with a hamstring tendon back in about 1923. So I think we're discovering things. All we're doing is rediscovering things we probably should have read about first. And so, yeah, it became attractive to simplify the operation. Nineties, there was a lot of recognition of the ACL. It was a pretty simple operation that would fix it and get people back to sport, and it all seemed a bit easy, and then people became concerned about the cosmesis. And it was really only then in the 2000s that we started realising, hang on, there is quite a high re-rupture rate, and you only find that out by... Documenting what's happening to every patient and contacting them further down the track to see how they've gone. You can't just assume that they're going to come back to see you and that every graft rupture you see is uh, your only graft ruptures. They might go somewhere else if they're not happy with you, and you know then that sort of comes back to that JB influence of documenting everything and working with Kate Webster from La Trobe Uni. We've worked together for since you know, very early in my practice. I think probably two years into my practice, maybe ninety. I started at the end of 92, so 94, I think we started working together and that's been an extraordinary collaboration. But it dawned on us that we had this high graft rupture rate in young patients, aged under 20 and very high under 18. And that became a concern and then we started looking at ways that we might prevent that, but probably going a step back. It's very hard to get up in front of a meeting of peers and report either low return to sport rates or high graft rupture rates because you're sort of saying hang on am i no good at this and then you get some reassurance when other people then perhaps have the courage to present their own data and realize no we've all got exactly the same experience like almost identical re-injury rates and so one of the approaches was to maybe consider tendon i mentioned becoming more interested in quads tendon the other approach was to think, oh, maybe there is a role for this lateral tenodesis in primaries. I used it not infrequently with revision situations, but started thinking, well, maybe in the high-risk young patient particularly should add a lateral tenodesis. And other people were thinking along the same lines. And some people, in fact, had done that all along, had just done an ACL with a lateral tenodesis. And Philippe Colombey from France um, had always done that. So, you need to look around the world because there's lots of ideas out there and some people are way ahead of your idea than you might think. But that's where the sort of interest in lateral tenodesis has come from and we've got more and more young people tearing their ACLs, so should we be doing more and more lateral tenodesis? The big stability study did show that a modified Lemaire or McIntosh, they're a very similar procedure, combined with a hamstring graft, did reduce their graft rupture rate. We're not sure about other grafts. We're not sure about other lateral tenodesies. I've preferred an Ellison, which I was taught by John Bartlett, um, which is less constraining because it doesn't attach to the femur. It relies on passing a strip of iliotibial band under the lateral collateral ligament and changing its direction of action. So we're not quite sure. I mean, initial results have been promising. We probably just need more data before we can really tell. And the best way is a randomised trial, but then it's very challenging to do a randomised trial when there's a public perception that maybe I need that extra thing on the outside of my knee and I see that often with professional sports and particularly footballers when I'm talking about what operation to do and they I go oh well you know I want this and that thing on the outside so you know I think like all things in medicine and orthopaedics it's a pendulum it swings too far in each direction and then the pendulum sort of comes down to a narrow arc and that's where it probably should sit
0: I did the first episode I ever did of this podcast was with two friends of mine and former patients of yours, Scott Hawthorne, uh, who was a footballer, and Reese Adams, who was a cricketer. Um, And between the two of them, there's 10 ACL ruptures. Scott's case, it was the first two were people diving across him and and knocking his knees out from under him. And Reese, I think he was jumping off a fence to go and fetch a soccer ball. Uh, And then as a bowler, he would land with his knee perpendicular to the, the batsman, which is probably... Not ideal for the uh, for the knee, but unfortunately, as I said, it meant to, they had a lot of ACL ruptures between the two of them, and both of them I think was under the age of eighteen when they had their first one. Scott definitely. Um, why is it so common to re-rupture the ACL, and do you have to? I think you've probably already touched on it a little bit with the different types of grafts, but how how does it uh, differ when you have to reconstruct a, a re-ruptured ACL?
1: I guess the first thing is why do they happen, and They're mostly non-contact. I mean, if there is a big contact injury, you sort of feel relieved in a way that it's not your fault as a surgeon. There are risk factors, and I think we probably don't understand the risk factors very well. But being young is the biggest risk factor. In our data, being male increases your risk of graft rupture. I suspect being female increases your risk of ACL rupture in the first place. But that's hard to tease out because you've got to get ex- um, exposure hours equivalent and, and I don't that'll take a long time to really sort that out but some of the American literature suggests being female may increase your risk of graft rupture. I'm not quite sure about that. We do know that an increased tibial slope on the lateral aspect particularly seems to be associated with an increased graft rupture rate. Most of the other things that are put forward aren't solid. The evidence is conflicting. So I think that's where we're hamstrung a little bit in that we know it's common in young people, but we can't quite identify the other risk factors that makes it happen to one young person as opposed to another young person. And so when we come to revise a graft, first thing to check is that the tunnels are in the right spot, and people make a lot of that. But having started my practice when I did, when we put grafts very, very vertically in the sort of nomenclature that's used... They didn't actually rupture that much, but people would say, "Well, that's because they weren't doing anything." Um, they probably were doing something, giving some stability, but not true stability. And then we moved to a more oblique orientation. The graft rupture rate went up, and now we're sort of drifting back, not to vertical, but higher. So, if you look at a clock face, you know, depending which knee you're doing, but you're thinking around that ten o'clock mark, ten fifteen. Um, you know, somewhere around there, ten thirty for some. So you look for the tunnel position. Nowadays, fortunately, most of them are pretty good, some are so bad it's easy that, you know, hopefully they're not your own patients, but you can bypass the, the old tunnels. Then you need to think about are the tunnels enlarged? And that, depending on the graft that's used and the type of fixation there may be tunnel enlargement. So then you have to fill the tunnel with bone and then the debate comes, do you do it as a single stage or a two stage? And some people will have a very low threshold for two stage. I've got a colleague, Andy Williams, very prominent in London, and um, he tries to do everything as one stage. I think you have to... Again, it's the pendulum. You've got to be somewhere in the middle. Um, and then you think about, what else can I do to change things? The, so the lateral tenodesis is an easy add-on. Um, you look at the tibial slope, but changing the tibial slope involves an osteotomy. And it's sort of a big deal, and I'm not really aware of anyone going back to high-level sport, post-osteotomy and uh, revision ACL reconstruction. There's probably some, but I'm just not aware of them. Looking at the meniscus, uh, meniscal deficiency, and on the lateral side, that might be a tear through the root of the meniscus, the posterior root, which has defunctioned it. That might be a significant resection on the medial side, more typically an extensive um, resection. But then do you do an allograft? So we, we are repairing the NISCI to try and get some stability. But um, whether an allograft actually adds stability and reduces the risk of graft rupture is a bit hard to know. Um, so I think revision, you, you're very reluctant just to go and do the same thing. You, you, need, you feel like you need to change something, and that might be in the rehabilitation, although I think generally patients are pretty well rehabilitated now. So it's really a challenging area, and um, certainly... It can be quite depressing early in the sort of winter season of sports, because people are coming back. It might be the first time they're returning to play after they graft the previous season. And when you see someone who's sort of that 12 months, what it be, whatever it is, somewhere between 10 and 14 months to come back with a graft rupture, that, that's really hard for everybody involved, and trying to understand why it's happened, and you think you've done a good job first time around, so we tend to change the graft. And a lateral tenodesis as a default.
0: Mm, and in researching this interview with you, there was plenty of information sources out there. You've done some interesting podcasts with some physios talking about, the, particularly the use that elite athletes have in accessing co- some sort of cooling system yeah, yeah. Um, to to reduce the swelling and, 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 and how, various dev- devices. Yeah. But the game ready is yes, game ready. Yeah, yeah, you know, and how important these sort of things are. But I'd really like to know. There's the famous quote that good surgeons know how to operate; better ones when to operate and the best when not to operate and in Melbourne especially probably with AFL there's a tendency that patients assume an ACL injury immediately means they need surgery can you just touch on the role of non-operative management of ACL injury
1: absolutely Um, I think it's a great statement and it's so important in surgery and um, it's certainly easier when you're established and you're older to not operate and resist the patient's desire to have an operation or they think they need an operation. I'm just about to head off to an extra clinic that I've put on today. was nominally a long weekend for me, which i tried to put into the calendar to find time to do all those sorts of things that I like to do, but it's that time of year where there's lots and lots of ACL injuries and the problem is that people all perceive it to be something that needs to be dealt with urgently. And probably the initial advice is important to have that early on, which is generally get your knee to settle down, get rid of the swelling, get your range of motion back, get off your crutches. There are times that there are exceptions like a displaced meniscal tear or a significant collateral ligament injury that needs repair, but generally most injuries are much better just left alone from a surgical point of view and re- rehabilitated. But that in itself can lead into a group who don't need surgery and going back keep coming up back to John Bartlett's influence in my final year of training. The way we looked at it in outpatients at the Austin where we saw a lot of ACLs, thanks to JB, a third clearly need an operation, a third clearly don't, and there's a third in the middle. And you can make your decisions about their likelihood of needing an operation and either give them a trial of non-operative treatment or just say, no, for various reasons, we're just going to operate once the knee's ready. So non-operative treatment can work on two counts. With ACE, with the MRI, you see these so-called high-grade tears where the actual ligament fibres are reasonably aligned and they've got a chance of healing. So some people will have an ACL that will heal. Now, whether it heals back to normal strength or not is debatable. And you do see these, some of these people who come back two years later with a, an ACL rupture or re-rupture. So we've got to be a little bit careful in terms of who we send back to sport with non-operative treatment. Um, In in that group, we were expecting healing. But then you've got another group where their knee is stable enough for them to do the things they want to do. You don't need an ACL for day-to-day life. When we do a total knee replacement, we cut the ACL out. I often joke, you know, I spend half a day cutting them out and half a day fixing them. But I think it takes a fair bit of time in the consulting room to explain to someone that they don't necessarily need an operation and in particular, there's no great rush to have an operation. And sometimes they come around, sometimes they don't. I've had people come in and say, Look, I know you're going to tell me I don't need an operation, I just want an operation. And then you have to make a sort of philosophical slash moral decision about what you're going to do. And if, do you really stick to your guns if they don't, you don't think they need an operation, go, no, nah, go and see someone else? Or do you say, Well, um, they want the operation, I think I can do it at, you know, with a fairly minimal risk and uh, low morbidity and, and do it and make sure they do their rehabilitation. So clearly a role. There's um, talk, more talk about repairing the ACL. Martha Murray's work in Boston um, is promising, but I have to say there's a little bit of a query about return to sport rates in that. that it's not a high rate of return to high-level sport, as far as I know. So time will tell. There's probably a bit too much non-operative treatment initiated without proper consideration. So the worst thing that can happen is a young person treated non-operatively and then gets a bucket handle tear of the medial meniscus when their knee gives way and that does change their knee, obviously you try to repair it and most of the time it'll heal but it won't heal like a normal meniscus and then you've got your increased risk of osteoarthritis so there is a trade off and I think it's trying to sort of find that middle ground which is always a challenge in medicine you know the safe middle ground which you're not exposing the patient at too much risk, you're not being gung ho um, but equally you're, you know, you're protecting the the patient for the longer term.
0: Sounds like the answer to that famous quote is time. And uh, you've obviously got a long career and and very, very proud that this podcast has got your name on it. I've been looking forward to interviewing you. And clearly, I think the best thing for me is going to uh, try and get a lot of time under my belt so I can hopefully be a good surgeon as well. So thank you so much for your time today, Professor Feller. My pleasure, Liam. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at SomaGradGroup or on our website, SomaGradGroup.com. See you in the next episode.